Section 5 of Flowers of Freethought, Second Series. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Donovan Drowse. Flowers of Freethought, Second Series, by George William Foote, Section 5. Bradlaugh's Ghost. Directly after Charles Bradlaugh's death, we expressed a belief that the Christians would concoct stories about him as soon as it was safe to do so. It took some time to concoct and circulate the pious narratives of the deathbeds of Voltaire and Thomas Paine, and a proper interval was necessary in the case of the great iconoclast. Already, however, the more superstitious and fanatical Christians are shaking their heads and muttering that Bradlaugh must have said something when he was dying, only they wouldn't allow believers in his sick room to hear it. By and by, the more cunning and unscrupulous will come to the aid of their weaker brethren, and a circumstantial story will be circulated in Sunday schools and Christian meetings. We are all well aware that his daughter took every precaution. She has the signed testimony of the nurses, that her father never spoke on the subject of religion during his last illness. But this may not avail, for similar precautions are admitted to have been taken in the cases of Voltaire and Paine. And, despite of this, the Christian traditors have forged the testimony of imaginary interlopers, whose word cannot be disproved, as they never existed outside the creative fancy of these liars for the glory of God. It is quite a superstition that truth is always a match for falsehood. George Eliot remarked that the human mind takes absurdity as asses chew thistles. We add that it swallows falsehood as the cat laps milk. It was humorously said the other day by Colonel Ingersoll that the truth is the weakest thing in the world. It always comes into the arena naked, and there it meets a healthy young lie in complete armor and the result is the truth gets licked. One good, solid lie will knock out a hundred truths. It has done so with respect to the death of Voltaire and Paine, and it will do so with respect to the death of Charles Bradlaugh. Meanwhile, the spiritualists are having innings. Charles Bradlaugh was buried by his friends at Woking, but his ghost is said to have turned up at Birmingham. It appears from a report in the Medium and Daybreak that Mr. Charles Gray of 139 Pershore Road, being sadly and sorrow-stricken by the passing away of his son, was constrained to remain at home on the evening of May 31st. A seance was arranged with a few friends, and of course a message was received from the dear departed boy. This was conveyed through Mr. Russell, Jr., whose age is not stated. Then Mr. Reedon was controlled to write by C. Bradlaugh. Mr. Reedon wrote in a perfectly unconscious state, and on the departure of the influence was much surprised on being told the nature of the communication. Mr. Reedon's surprise may have been great, but it scarcely equals our own. One would imagine that if Charles Bradlaugh still lived, and were able to communicate with the people in this world, he would speak to his beloved daughter, and to the friends who loved him with a deathless affection. Why should he go all the way to Birmingham instead of doing his first business in London? Why would he turn up at the house of Mr. Gray? Why should he control the obscure Mr. Reedman? This behavior is absolutely foreign to the character of Charles Bradlaugh. It was not one of his weaknesses to beat around the bush. He went straight to his mark and found a way or made one. Death seems to change a man, if we may believe the spiritualists, but if it has altered Charles Bradlaugh's character, it has effected a still more startling change in his intellect and expression. Here is a correct copy of Charles Bradlaugh's message to mankind, and most of our readers will regard it as a very Brummigan communication. As I am not to speak, so says the warrior chief. I am to say in writing, I have found a life beyond the grave that I did not wish for nor believe in, but it is even so. My voice shall yet declare it. 
I have to undo all, or nearly all, I have done, but I will not complain. My mind is subdued, but I will be a man. It is the most glorious truth that is now more clearly dawned upon my mind that there is a grand and noble purpose before all men worth living for. May this be the dawn of a new and glorious era of the spiritual life of your humble friend, Charles Bradlaugh. There is a God, there is a divine principle, there is more in life that we wot of, but vastly more in death. Oh, for a thousand tongues to declare the truths which are now fast dawning upon my bewildered mind. Death, the great leveler, need have no more terrors for us, for it has been conquered by the great spirit in giving us a never-ending life in the glorious spheres of immortal bliss. Oh, my friends, may I be permitted to declare more fully and fervently the joys which fill my mind. Language fails. No tongue can describe. Our own impression is that Professor Huxley was justified in saying that spiritualism adds a new terror to death. Fancy the awful depth of flaccid imbecility into which Charles Bradlaugh must have fallen to indulge in O's and gasp out glorious, glorious, and talk of his subdued and bewildered mind, and bid himself to be a man. It was not thus that he spoke in the flesh. His language was manly, firm, and restrained. His attitude was bold and self-reliant. After four months in this spirit world, he is positively trembling and driveling. It is enough to make the rugged iconoclast turn in his grave. Messrs. Gray and Reben may rely upon it that Charles Bradlaugh is not able to enter number 139 Pershaw Road, Birmingham. If he were, he would descend in a swift wrath upon his silly tradicers, who would put their own inanity in his mouth, making the great, virile atheist talk like a little, flabby spiritualist after an orgy of ginger beer. Anyone may see at a glance that the style of this message, from beginning to end, is not Charles Bradlaugh's. Whose style it is, we cannot say. We do not pretend to fathom the arcana of spiritualism. It may be Mr. Reedman's, it may be another's. If it be Mr. Reedman's, he must have been guilty of fraud or the victim of deception. Three distinct hypotheses are possible. Either someone else produced or concocted the message while he was in a foolish trance, or he wrote it himself consciously, or he had been thinking of Charles Bradlaugh before falling into the foolish trance, and the message was due to unconscious cerebration. We forbear to analyze this wretched stuff, though we might show its intrinsic absurdity and self-contradiction. One monstrous piece of folly bestrides the rest like a colossus. Your humble friend, Charles Bradlaugh. Shade of Uriah Heep. Charles Bradlaugh, the humble friend of illustrious Gray and Reedman. Think of it, Lord Halsbury. Think of it, Lord Randolph Churchill. The giant who fought you and beat you in the law courts and in Parliament. The man whose face was a challenge. The man who had the pride without the malignity of Lucifer. This very man crawls into a Birmingham house, uninvited and unexpected, and announces himself as the humble friend of some pudding-headed people, engaged in a fatuous occupation that makes one blush for one's species. Surely if Charles Bradlaugh's ghost is knocking about this planet, having a mission to undo the work his lifetime in the flesh, it should begin the task in London. It was at the Hall of Science that Charles Bradlaugh achieved his greatest triumphs as a public teacher and it is there that he should first attempt to undo his work, to unteach his teaching, to disabuse the minds of his dupes. Of course, we shall all be told that he must communicate through mediums, and that the medium must be controlled by Charles Bradlaugh's spirit. But to this we reply that Charles Bradlaugh controlled men easily while he was in the flesh, and it is inconceivable that he has lost that old power if he still survives. On the whole, we think the spiritist trick is worse than the malignity of orthodox Christians. 
A lie about a man's deathbed ends there, and consigning him to hell for his infidelity is only a pious wish that cannot affect his fate. But getting hold of a man's ghost, spirit they call it, after his death, making it turn up at public and private sittings of obscure fools, setting it jabbering all the flatulent nonsense of its manipulators, and using it in this manner until it is to be dismissed for a newer, more fashionable, and more profitable shadow. All this is so hideous and revolting that the ordinary Christian lies about infidels seem almost a compliment in comparison. This Grey Reben story is probably the beginning of a long and wretched business. The Philistines are upon thee, Charles Bradlaugh. They will harness thee in their mill and make thee grind their grist in fools that were not worth a moment of thy time, while thou livest, will command thee by the hour, and sludge the medium will use thy great name to puff his obscene vanity, and swell his obscener gains. This is the worst of all thy trials, for thou canst not defend thyself, and in thy helplessness fools and pygmies but capers over thy grave. End of section 5